Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly discussion show all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bulmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and I'm joined this afternoon by Tommy Stadlin and Johnny Goodwin OBE, two prominent members of the UK's investing community. Tommy is the co-founder of Giant Ventures and has had a remarkably varied career. He's worked as an advisor to both Barack Obama and David Miliband. He set up a photography app that was then sold to Microsoft, and he even found time to become a teenage ambient music star along the way. Johnny, meanwhile, is the head of Alvarium Merchant Banking. He's enjoyed a rich and colourful career too, mainly in television and radio, where he's advised on over 100 very high-profile media deals in his time. He's best known now, perhaps, for setting up Founders Forum, a network for entrepreneurs with Brent Hoberman. This episode is all about tech investing in 2021 and the current climate and outlook for the wider venture capital community. In it, Tommy and Johnny discuss how purpose is now front and centre in most investment decisions, the rise of the special acquisition company, how they stay on top of the sea of noise and nonsense in startup land, and the sort of entrepreneurs that they do and don't like to invest in. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Chaps, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's lovely to have you both. And we're here, I think, as we know, to talk about the oft-discussed but perhaps rarely truly understood world of investment, particularly tech and media investment. But before we get into all that, I'd love to know a bit about your backgrounds and specifically what you were like long, long ago before this era of tech when you were just starting out in your careers. What were your first jobs? Um Tommy, perhaps we'll start with you. What did you do before all of this? Sure, yeah. Well, I think I'm the ultimate um, jack of all trades, master of none. I started my career actually in politics. I worked for then Senator Obama in 2008 on his campaign wow. to be president. Um, so I was a very junior speechwriter and did things like held the rope to keep the press away and, and all sorts of things like that. So I had a great time doing that. Um, I then went to work for David Miliband on his less successful campaign against his little brother, Ed. So my, my yeah. track record went down by 50%, but um, really enjoyed working with David. And, and he's actually now an advisory board member with our firm, Giant Ventures. Um, but I moved out of politics. Um, I went into strategy consulting. I did five years in strategy consulting, latterly with McKinsey, made a lot of slides for a living. Um, and then before taking a year out to write a book, about the relationship between business and society, which I wrote with Lord Brown, John Brown, the former BP CEO. And from there, wow. I made the transition into technology to first become an entrepreneur and then an investor. Was there a period as well? I mean, I've been stalking your LinkedIn when you were an ambient music artist. Is that right? 
Yeah, still working on the, the difficult second album. It's still a work in progress. We've got three tracks, but you know we're, we're, we're a long way from the second album. Yeah, I, I thought I was, when I was 16, I thought I was going to be a, an ambient music composer. I grew up on the same street as a guy called Brian Eno, who was wow. the mentor of ambient music, some people will know, uh, producer of U2 and so on. So I was very lucky to be taught music by him. Um, but I didn't really live up to, to his Jewish. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a record deal when I was 16 and with release records and rough trade. And I, I distinctly remember sitting in a science class saying, that's it. I don't have to do this anymore. I'm done. I'm going to be a musician. Wow. And then the record sold 18 copies, most of them bought by my family. And <laughs> I had to go back with my tail between my legs to, to GCSE science. There's still time for, for that album. Uh, and what about you, Johnny? You, you've had a pretty varied career as well starting in TV and all sorts of things. Can you tell us a bit about that? I really liked sailing quite seriously when I was younger and thought the best place to be able to go and try and take it seriously was the army. So I was actually supposed to go to the army, into the army after university and had a back accident, which meant I couldn't go and do that. Um, somebody who I knew through sailing actually was trying to find uh, a, a junior analyst to go and join Apex partners um, on the advisory side. And so I went in, very luckily went in and started focusing on media. And then we had a, a share of Virgin Radio. Uh, and so I was tasked with helping the team sell the stake that the Apex had in Virgin Radio because Richard Branson didn't want to sell the whole group. Mm. Um, so we started getting ready to go and find some partners to buy the stake to be a partner with. Richard Branson and the version group and suddenly he changed his mind and said he wanted to buy it instead and so we sold it to version radio to then a few weeks later realize that actually he had been approached by capital to buy the whole thing and then it, it was blocked by what was then called the monopolies and mergers commission and Chris Evans who, who at the time was doing very well with don't forget your toothbrush came in and said I don't want capital to own this station I want to own it and so I was again put on as a junior to try and help Chris buy Virgin Radio, which we did. So that was my sort of exposure as a, a little lowly advisor, was then very much into that world of radio and media. And then Kelvin McKenzie, who had been editor of the Sun newspaper, came in and he wanted to buy Talk Radio, which was, as we called it then, a sort of clapped out national radio station owned by CLT Ufa and so we helped him put that together and I'd been at the time interviewing to go to Goldman Sachs and I think about 18 interviews in I was playing squash one night with Kelvin when we were about to close buying talk radio it really was a, a very small business and he needed somebody who could come and help him day to day so I turned around and said well why don't I do it I think I was 26 at the time yeah and he said well you're completely unqualified and I said well so are you so we said well, let's give it a go. So we closed the deal the following Saturday, Friday night, Saturday morning, and I left that night, Apex. Walked in the next morning to Talk Radio and fired the management team at Talk Radio. Wow. And then we started to, we actually hired Nick Ferrari to come and do the morning, the breakfast show. And he's obviously now hugely successful with LBC. Yeah. But we we realised that at the time we weren't going to make a speech only some news chat show, sort of radio station work so we i remember we were on the speakerphone with rupert murdoch one day so and i remember kelvin finishing as he told him that we were going to call it talk sport and it's going to become the uk's first sports only radio station and he said okay i'm in 
Wow. So we shut down Talk Radio, rebranded it Talk Sport and went for it. And it's now the most profitable, successful national radio station in the UK, um, which was just an amazing experience to see turning around and the conviction that Kelvin and his understanding of content and customers and everything, yeah. which is actually just as relevant in the world of tech that Tommy and I see every day in other parts of our lives now. But the, the ability to actually understand your audience, to understand the market is, is so, so important. I then left and started um, a, a sort of a corporate finance boutique. Um, and that's, that's when I got into the world of being an advisor to a lot of these sort of tech founders and, and sort of startups. And from that also developing the idea and the relationship with Brent, which led to the Founders Forum yeah. um, and everything that we now are. And Tommy and I are meeting, meeting through all of that as well. So I, I've been lucky enough to be really more of having a ringside seat with some of these people than um, be the, the tech entrepreneur that, that somebody like a Tommy has. Do you think those kind of slightly more eclectic and varied careers are, are important if you're going to be investing or backing a company? Do you think you need to have been around the block, so to speak, Tommy? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had done more venture capital investing before I started my company. Um, I wish I'd had that experience and that breadth of, of, of understanding and just the, um, the pattern recognition that you get as a venture capitalist. You see literally thousands of businesses a year and you see so many unforced errors. You see so many um, entrepreneurs going down paths which having had the benefit of that pattern recognition are paths which are probably obviously dead ends to you but are not to the entrepreneur. Um, and you can only have that um, benefit once you've seen the pattern recognition. So yeah, I wish I'd done that in, in a way. Um, I would say the flip side to that is that I think you need a certain amount of blind optimism as an entrepreneur. And sometimes knowing too much can be dangerous. Um, and, you know, Johnny mentioned Brent, for example, and I often talk to, to, to Brent Oman, you know, when he sees travel startups, he probably knows too much. And so he might be too negative about them and say it's never going to work because he knows how hard it is. But same with me with photo apps. I, I don't think I've invested in a single photo app despite having started one because I know just how hard it is. So I think there's an element of, of blind optimism which can be helpful. Um, but definitely as an investor, I, I love looking out for second time founders, serial entrepreneurs who've been there and done it. Um, because the next time around, the second and the third time, they're just so much more prepared to do it. They're going to cut out the unforced errors. Um, and I think the data shows that uh, second time founders are, are much more successful on average. Um, and, and so that's something to look for. I think the, the crucial bit is that you've got to remain hungry, though. So even better is a second time founder who's proven they can do it once, but remains hungry because either, you know, they weren't CEO first time around and they want to prove they can do it as CEO or, um, you know, they didn't make enough money, they sold too early, um, or this, you know, this is their passion and that's what they, they want to do forever. And it's really interesting if you look at some of the, the very successful entrepreneurs, um, all of the Twitter founders have had that drive to go on and do it a second time, you know, and whether it's with Medium or whether it's with Square, Jack Dorsey's second business, Bizstone, who is my chairman, uh, and my startup has, has gone on and built multiple other businesses as well. Um, and I think an element of it was probably, you know, there was the famous Mark Zuckerberg jibe at the Twitter founders where he called them the, the clowns who fell into a gold mine and couldn't get out. You know, they just got lucky. And I think may, maybe there was a bit of that where they wanted to prove that they didn't get lucky the first time and wanted to do it again. So you've got to remain hungry. But yeah, great, great to have some kind of experience um, having, having done it once or been a venture investor, I think really does help. I mentioned that idea of pattern recognition and 
And unforced errors is a great phrase. What mostly do first-time entrepreneurs get wrong? What's the most common reason they scupper themselves, John, do you think, if there is one? There, there obviously isn't one. I think the career entrepreneur, startup guy, girl, who are focusing too early on on okay, this is my exit, we're doing a bridge to this, we're doing a bridge to that. I thought, you know, it's standard now that the convert to the this and that, the other should be at a 30% discount because that's kind of the benchmark and we're scaling in this way. And that formulaic approach, not ignoring Tommy's view on pattern recognition, which I think is, is so true when it comes to running the business, but when it comes to scaling a startup, the things which I run away from are people who are just too focused on what they think they deserve for a business that happens to be a startup and is at a certain stage of its life cycle. And they're overcomplicating and justifying valuations and capital raises. And you feel they're spending more time fundraising and more time worrying about what that journey is than they are actually getting through the health to skelter and the, the, the puddle of trying to run a business every day. And if you look at the really amazing, passionate people, they're very product consumer focused people whatever their customer is that they live and die they, they don't have time to see bankers and advisors and vcs mm. and the ones i'm always worried about the ones who are constantly on a journey to go to every conference and be on everything and uh, and every venture capitalist best friend i'm always more interested in the people who the venture capitalist has all the growth equity investors had to go and find and really bang the door down. I mean, yeah. the, the other bit is I think that sometimes people just haven't put enough cash in, in the bank to make sure they can ride the extra six months that sometimes these things take. Yeah. And they're just overly concerned about not being deleted too much or whatever, but it, it, it's difficult to pinpoint one thing, but certainly the ones who are more focused on their investors and their rounds and the, the jargon that sometimes goes with it, I yeah. worry about. Yeah. The, the unforced errors I tend to see are, are ones of timing often. So people who are either too early for a market and are then stranded four or five years waiting for either the technology or the, or the market demand to catch up or too late and are going after markets um, where there are already such dominant incumbents, which is sort of what I did with a photo app trying to take on Snapchat and Instagram yeah. uh, you know, in 2016, 17, it was just too late um, in many ways. And then the other one is where you go after a market which on the surface just isn't big enough. And you, you see that quite often. There is a caveat with that, though, which is that you can get that so badly wrong as an investor. You know, if you would have looked at Uber in its first round, you would have thought the market for black cars in San Francisco is tiny. It's just not big enough to be a big business. And lots of people passed on it for that reason. And then, of course, it's a you know, $50, $100 billion company. So you have to be careful. And there's always an exception to prove the rule. It's interesting. Um... The, how much weight sometimes looking from the outside people put on the founders themselves and the entrepreneurs almost it seems above the idea or the opportunity when you're meeting founders and they're they're trying to pitch or even just kind of ask for advice do you have a mental checklist or a series of questions you ask that can very quickly sort the um the wheat from the chaff so to speak yeah i mean i for me when particularly when i'm investing at the seed stage which is the core of what i do as a technology investor for me it's all about the founder yeah. And because as I said, you can get market size so wrong, things change inevitably so much, people pivot. But the one thing that tends not to change is the quality of the founder. And so I focused uh, more on that than anything else. And you have to be quite clever because you, you, know, you have to try and find ways of really getting to know someone very quickly, often in a competitive yeah. dynamic where there are other investors looking. And particularly now where everything's done on Zoom, 
it's even harder to build a rapport to understand someone's uh, resilience and so on. And so that's what I really look for. I look for resilience, obsessiveness, uh, perseverance. Those are the, the characteristics that, to me, unite all successful founders. There are very few other characteristics which unite successful founders. You get the sort of, you know, the Harvard Business School, very cookie cutter, very, you know, fantastic CV type of founders. Then you get the university dropouts. You get the 19-year-old kids, you get the 50-year-old former execs and with such different characteristics. But I would say that all of them share an obsessiveness and a perseverance because, you know, probably with the exception of Google, every startup, even the best ones, have a really bad year and you have to be able to get over that. So that, that's what I look for. And how do you find it? I think you spend as many hours as you can with the founder and you yeah. probably ask them a lot about their childhood and the types of things they've overcome. And then you might ask to speak to a lot of their you know, former colleagues, former co-founders, former investors, and just try to build a 360 view of as quickly as you can to get a, a good understanding of who they are. So it's personality-based, almost more than kind of, I don't know, expertise or CV. You're really looking for something deep in their kind of consciousness, I suppose. Is that right? Is that fair to say? I think you want both. You want, you know, if you're looking at a, a deep tech business, of course, you want the world expert in the field of whether it's bioscience or artificial intelligence. But what I'm saying is that's not enough. So you want oh. that plus the incredible drive, the determination and all of those things, because one without the other, I think, is is not enough. And how are we making founders in this country compared to other places around the world? Are Britain, Brits good at it, do you think? We've constantly got, you know, the French pretending that they've got the best ecosystem in the world. The Germans occasionally <laughs> roll out of bed thinking they're amazing. The Swedes probably have the best claim because they actually had government policy, which meant that everybody had proper broadband connection and everybody had to play a musical instrument. And surprise, mm. surprise, Spotify emerged along with a, a bunch of other really amazing entrepreneurs. So they probably outperform per capita. The rest of it, there are some good entrepreneurs from lots of different countries, but Britain is outstanding outside of the Valley and America. I think we've got a culture of exploring and of being able to be quite international. We benefit from law, from our trading relationships all over the world. And, the, and I think that we are more global in our in our culture generally. So I think Britain is very good at making entrepreneurs culturally. London is the best home of venture capital and startups, certainly outside of America. And I think increasingly is just a very good place to go. Um, and I think post the pandemic london will absolutely boom and i hope other regions around britain which is, is much more affordable I'm, I'm sitting down here near southampton which got one of the best computer faculties of any university in britain uh, and lots of space and lots of places to build startup communities there's a tiny development part of one of the biggest games developers in the world um is sitting on the farm where i am's business park um with a great big fiber connection because yeah. all the developers want to live and work in the country and i think that dispersing of talent across britain into other areas is going to be a, a really interesting development over the coming years post-pandemic and post-brexit yeah. but i think london will remain the home of a lot of the venture capital obviously they've got offices elsewhere but you, know, you just look at the americans coming here and you and you know People don't want to go and live in Frankfurt or uh, don't want to be stuck in as many of the other places around Europe as people think. 
and mm -hmm. London is thriving. And there are lots of other nice cities across Europe as well, but London is the number one place for venture in Europe. I think I'm right in saying that the UK has attracted more venture capital dollars than the rest of Europe combined last year. And I think the UK has more unicorns than France, Germany, and the Netherlands combined. So for sure, it's the tech hub in Europe, yeah, yeah. you know, closely behind the, the US and China. I think I would say that, um, which, which I know Johnny shares his opinion strongly as well, that a lot of that is immigrant-based talent. So I think if you look at the, I think it's the top 50 most fast-growing technology companies in the UK, about half of them started by immigrants to the UK. Yeah. And, and that's crucial. And you see that in Silicon Valley as well. Um, yeah. and the other thing is that, as I said earlier, investing is all happening through Zoom now. And so right. you see borders collapsing in an extraordinary way where it really just doesn't matter at all whether the founder is in London or Kiev. And the US um, investment influx into the UK is, is an interesting dynamic. It's great for UK technology. It makes it harder for purely UK-focused funds who are suddenly competing with Sequoia and uh, in, you know, Spark Capital and others who are investing into the UK because there's no real advantage now of being in you know, Shoreditch or whatever, because you can't see the person in, in person yeah. in the same way that the US investors can't. So that's an interesting trend. That brings us on to, I guess, the last year in general and the pandemic. We could talk about it more generally, but just in your both of your day-to-day -day working lives, what has surprised you most about the change of the last year? What's been the most fundamental thing that has shifted for you? I mean, for me, I think the, the last year or 18 months, I think it's been the most important year for technology and for venture capital in the last decade, at least. Um, you know, I think in the in the space of about a year, you've gone for venture capitalists looking for one billion dollar outcomes as a really good thing, to looking for ten billion dollar or even a hundred billion dollar outcomes as a really good thing. The whole thing has just shifted, wow. um, and I think we're living in a kind of golden era of venture capital and technology. And a lot of that has been the acceleration of digitization that the pandemic has brought about, whether that's in things like telemedicine, whether that obviously is in things like uh, video conferencing and remote work. And so you've seen things which would have gradually happened, e-commerce as well, um, things which would have taken five, 10 years to, ha to, to, to accelerate and penetrate have just completely changed overnight. And so you see extraordinary success stories like Zoom, but many others as well. Yeah. And so there's been a huge change there. And I think what's really great is not just the financial aspect of that for the founders and for the investors, um, but it's been really nice to see technology for once be part of the solution rather than be part of the problem. So, you know, when I first started getting into technology, technology was what the most loved sector. Everyone wanted to work in it. It was great. People thought it was fantastic. And you had these, you know, cool California startups. And then there was the shift and suddenly they were the big bad guys and people were worried about Uber and Airbnb butting up against cities and regulators, obviously privacy with um, Cambridge Analytica and, and Facebook and so on. Um, and there was a real angst and a, a problem between society and big tech. And what's been great with the pandemic is it's been so obvious that technology has been part of the solution, not just with the extraordinary science work that's been going on with the vaccine and so on, but also with the ability of the economies to keep going despite an extraordinary shutdown through things like video conferencing and, and collaborative software and so on. So that, that's been, I think, really fantastic to see. And Johnny, has that, has that kind of thinking changed your strategy? Now, uh, yeah, in the kind of things you invest in, how's the pandemic impacted your, your decision-making when it comes to investments? We have uh, been lucky enough um, with Tommy to put some 
co-investment vehicles together. So we, we were able to put some investors into CARM, which clearly has benefited from the, the pandemic because of mm. the uh, impact on some wellness and health and, and the, the drive for people to spend more time looking after themselves. We invested in, a, um, again, led by Tommy, a, a, a sort of online real estate business called Compass in America, which is going gangbusters because, surprise, surprise, people have realised they can have a good look around their apartment that they want to go and buy online and speak to people online and they're embracing Zoom, et cetera. And so you go from this business is going to have a really tough time suddenly realising that it had just the most amazing COVID. So I think you know, Tommy and I are seeing real interest in on the technology side in the sort of the environmental and sort of impact areas as well. So I think impact and innovation and people being thoughtful around where consumers are changing their habits you know we're changing the way we live we are going to work at home more we care about families more we are worried about the environment if it, if it comes to you know the, the the amount of online shopping that we're all now doing and the ability to now get tommy and i and all of us on instagram for a for a new clothing brand and these sorts of things but we want to go and buy the the clothing brands that's using renewables you know, mm. there are all these sort of trends around doing good uh, and and parts of the world, the trade ship being an example where supply chain software, why wouldn't you just have that completely digitized, automated and on in the cloud? It, you don't need yeah. invoices being sent around. Those sorts of things I think have just accelerated massively. So if you want the COVID accelerant is something which I definitely am looking for now in terms of where are people going to benefit from the way the world is now coming out, which hopefully is a little bit more thoughtful, yeah. certainly more digital and trying to be more efficient generally and caring, I think, overall for the environment in a, in, in a more responsible manner. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, this last year, there's been huge kind of moments of positive social change and just kind of realizations about the kind of companies we we buy into. Do you think that will be continue to be the biggest force in um in kind of startup culture, purpose, this idea of purpose, of kind of positive impact. What do you think, Tommy? Is that what people now look for more than anything else? Absolutely, yes. So that's what we built Giant Ventures around. So my firm, Giant Ventures, which I co-founded with Cameron McLean, we invest only in purpose-driven technology founders. Mm. And we have a really clear thesis that we think the biggest companies of the 2020s will be companies that are solving a problem that really matters to society whether that's a social problem like health, like housing, like financial inclusion, or a big environmental problem like climate or air quality. And we think that you've already seen signs of that. You know, if you look at Tesla is closing in on being a trillion dollar company, you look at Beyond Meat, which is one of the most successful IPOs of 2019 uh, in the alternative protein space, there are some early signs of it. Um, but we, we definitely think that over the next decade, you will see a generation of founders who increasingly want to start mission-driven companies and work for them. And that's the most important thing as I keep on coming back to is the talent are flooding into that area. Um, and they're going to solve problems that, as I said, matter to society and which government alone can't solve without business. Um, and then you've also got enormous pressure from the really big investors like BlackRock and others who are saying, we're no longer going to put capital to work into industries like coal. And we are going to, you know, choose to put our money to work into more world positive companies. So there's pressure from them, there's pressure from consumers who are finally voting with their wallet to yeah. uh, you know, pay for more sustainable goods and services. So yeah, we think this is a mega trend. 
Um, and we think it's the investment opportunity of the decade, which is great news because it means that these problems are much more likely to get solved if you've got you know amazing entrepreneurs using very, very advanced technology to solve them. Is there ever a sense that people kind of tack on purpose as an afterthought in 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 a nod to getting that kind of investment? I mean, you see it on a micro level when people say, oh, we give 10% of our profits to some charity. I'm not saying it's not a good thing. I just don't think it's very impactful. I'm, uh, I, I've been lucky enough having um, co-founded pro, um, Founders Forum um, with, with Brent to then sort of help found and share Founders Pledge, which um, has been phenomenal at opening my eyes on what their strategy has been, which is to onboard a number of founders um, to pledge to give a bunch of their equity when there is a liquidity event to charity. And so rather than saying they're giving a percentage of profits or whatever, they're just saying, look, we're going to grow real capital value. If we're successful, we're giving X percent. And that percentage has, by the way, gone up every year. I mean, I think they've got pledges which are worth well over a billion now in terms of, of monies that will go to charity through the founders pledge but the, rather than just making it sort of an annual donation and, and giving something which again i don't want to belittle there is a more thoughtful journey that i think founders are going on around how they choose what they want to be involved on philanthropically and when the founders are doing it you tend to then find that a whole company starts having a meaningful introspective look at the way they work and what they want to do to try and do good as well and it's more than just writing a check at the end of the year it's about how you might then get involved with the, the local food bank or you know in london the the felix project or that you 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 find that you can do volunteering and you can give a bunch of time and you encourage people to do those sorts of things and that that i think is a good um mm. again development i'm wary of the the business model that says, and by the way, we're giving X to, to charity because it's, it, it's a little bit of a sticky plaster and a bit of a marketing ploy, I think. Yeah. Um, it's not, uh, um, in, in my humble opinion, I think doing it the other way around and saying, look, there are some really interesting developments like Tommy has done in the world, particularly around the environment. And we want to get behind those areas which are going to be hugely profitable and make the world a better place is a very sustainable way of doing good yeah i think where it really works like johnny says is where the core purpose and strategy and everyday operations of your business is focused entirely on a social or environmental problem yeah so that's where you know every time you generate another dollar of revenue you generate more impact that's where it works incredibly powerful powerfully that's much easier to do for a startup we're starting from scratch and you're saying our sole commercial purpose is to fix this social or environmental problem. Yeah. Where it's much harder is for the big corporates who their purpose is already set and it might not be that great. And they're trying to adjust it and they're trying to put a sticking plaster over it. And that's where things like, you know, corporate social responsibility for me are dead. Uh, and I think they're seen inside the big corporates as sort of cost centers, which don't really mean much. And they're seen yeah. to the outsiders as greenwashing. So, you know, you looked at um, Enron, for example, going back many, many years, the year that Enron had the biggest corporate bankruptcy and scandal in American history, they won every single CSR award going, right? Because it was it was showed the disconnect between the reality of their business and then this kind of disconnected CSR strategy. And I don't think things have changed that much. You know, you, you probably both will remember the um, the VW emissions scandal where they got caught fiddling the, the emissions testing. And the, the week that that news broke, they um, won the Dow Jones Sustainability, sustainability Index most 
um, sustainable car company in the entire world. Wow. And so again, the kind of disconnect between this world of sustainability consultants and CSR and the reality of what's going on in business is really stark. Um, and but but there's a penalty. Eventually, it catch up, catches up with you. So that week when that happens to VW, their share price dropped by thirty three percent. So eventually, it does catch up with you. One of the um, things that's come over my radar, certainly in the last year, is this idea that you touched on, Johnny, of the special acquisition company. Um, and often when they're written about now, they're kind of, people are fairly wary of them. There seems to be some idea that they're a kind of sinister investment vehicle. What do you guys think of of this fairly new development of, of the SPAC? How do you see it working? I'm one of the very few people in the world who have managed to lose money doing my own SPAC. So I know I know all the pitfalls and lots of what is written about is true. You know, there is no such thing as free money and you need to be very careful about what it is that the the, the SPAC is there for. Mm. Um, and SPAC is a very loose term. It is, you know, you, you, the specificity of it is critical because it is purely a mechanism to hold an amount of capital, which, by the way, it doesn't have any of, in one place for a deal. So it is a bit like saying any private equity vehicle. Yeah. You know, there are good ones, there are bad ones, there are small ones, there are big ones. And there are crooked ones and there are clever ones and all sorts. And the SPACs are no, are no different. The, where they work, if we're positive about it, is they allow the speed and fluidity of transfer and marriage of capital and investors to an idea and a company that needs to, wants to, or thinks it is going to be- benefit best from being public very, very quickly and efficiently if you sort of take a deep breath and run. And what do I mean by that? It, it really is, it shortcuts a an IPO process and provides people with an ability to go public quickly, probably at a slightly lower value than they would have done if they'd done it on their own. And the reason that it's therefore worth doing is if the company is growing very quickly and the market opportunity is very, growing very quickly. And that's why it's suddenly become very suitable for the innovation economy at, at large and for anything around impact and, and innovation. And, and we've just announced one this morning, as we talked about it right at the beginning, um, where we've been acting for DCRB, which I think I'm now actually yeah, allowed to talk about because it's been announced on the wires this morning, as I said, that this hydrogen deal. And the reason that it suited us back is because yeah, only 2% of the vehicles in the world at the moment are electric. And then a tiny percentage of those are now moving towards hydrogen. So if you look at the market opportunity, it is enormous. So if the company is growing and the market opportunity is growing and the capital that is going into areas like hydrogen-enabled solutions for automobiles mm-hmm. um, it, it is, is happening and becoming more capital efficient, that explosive growth with really big long-term contracts and, and, and turnover suits a SPAC because it can be it can move on it very quickly. And yeah. the the fudge, you know, the value erosion that comes from the sponsor capital that's sitting in the middle of all of it is tiny. And therefore the leakage, for want of a better description, is way more palatable. And that's why I think for really fast-growing businesses that could benefit from being public quicker and are able to then use that capital to carry on going quickly and where time is worth something, SPACs are really, really good. Where you have a large corporate that wants to do some form of 
you know, efficient spin-off, uh, a SPAC is a very good vehicle. Um, so they're not all bad at all. As I said, we have just been lucky enough to be the advisors on, on the right side of doing some very exciting stuff with Eric Anderson. He's a phenomenal entrepreneur who set up um, West River Group. He was the founder of Top Golf, first investor in DocuSign, partner now of Silicon Valley Bank, having transferred all of his debt lending businesses to them. He he did this with Riverstone, who are one of the top energy private equity houses in the world, and McKinsey. Um, and I think this is now probably going to go down as one of the most successful SPACs of all time. Um, so it's where the market growth is there and the company growth is there. And I think the fact that it also has impact at the in the middle of it is not irrelevant at all. Uh, and it's where Tommy's focus as well, I know, is is, is so relevant and, and where you're marrying real technology innovation with impact in these in particularly these big environmental areas it, it, it's kind of amazing and, and that's why the SPACs have done so well for electronic for electric vehicle um, company and now for this hydrogen deal uh, and I think that they are the best examples of SPACs being used properly in my view. When I listen to you guys speak you seem so worldly on top of all these different international trends and I understand it's your job, of course, but the startup world and tech in particular is so full of noise and sometimes nonsense and misinformation a lot of the time and misunderstandings. How do you, on a day-to-day level, keep abreast of of new technologies, new developments, who the, the leading figures are? Do you, are you constantly reading? Are you what are you listening to? What, how do you cut through it all? What are you listening to, Johnny? <laughs> I so little it embarrasses me. I mean, I've got lots of children. I listen to them. Okay. I listen to the Today program every morning when I'm pottering around, but not for very long. Yeah, I vaguely skip through a couple of papers in the business sections and in the FT on my iPad. <laughs> At weekend, I read them a bit more. I print out a bunch of stuff that gets sent to me. Uh, and I end up with a big pile at the weekends and I pretend I read it all and I don't. I used to read it on the planes, which obviously we're no longer on. Uh, I tried to get into podcasts and just haven't enough, even though we're giving one now. <laughs> um, uh, and it, and the, the thing which gives me the most learning is the fact that I am lucky enough to meet with an enormous number of entrepreneurs who people are kind enough to introduce me to and say, can you speak to this person about this or whatever? So my biggest learning is I have benefited from having a an ability to meet people. And I am doing 12 to 18 Zooms a day. And a number of those are with new people, with companies that are trying to work out what to do next. And I sift through a bunch of them and I meet people for 15 minutes, for half an hour, for an hour. And that's the thing which gives me the greatest insight into what's going on is I get to meet and speak to a lot of entrepreneurs at various stages of their life cycle. Not all startups, but a lot of them pretty early on. And some of it's, Johnny, will you give them a, some ideas of people to go and see or whatever? And some of it's later stage and I'm trying to persuade them to make me their advisor. And some of them I'm interested in trying to work out how we can become a co-investor through putting a, a group of investors together as, as Tommy and I have done in, in certain other ones. So that is the thing which I am the luckiest enough to be around is I have my day filled with amazing people yeah. at the moment on Zoom. I read in an Evening Standard interview with you where it said that you woke up at 4am every day 
Is that is was that true? Is that still the case? Yeah, it's about five. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's when I do it. I, I, but by the way, I'm in bed early. I'm not some. I'm not <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. I um. I it's just it's just a a quiet time of day, and I do. I, that's when I do my emails. Would yeah. try and actually get through them, and then I try and. Uh, now I'm in in the, in the country in lockdown. I I then try and go, and have a march at sort of six thirty seven o'clock in the morning, and then uh, and then back on it. So it's nice. Yeah, that, that's when I get up. And you, what about you, Tommy? Where do you find out and learn and, and understand things? Well, first of all, on sleep, I, I can't function on anything less than eight hours a night. I get deeply emotional and uh, and vicious if I don't have eight hours sleep. I don't believe human beings should be awake before 8 a.m. Uh, so I'm afraid I don't have that. <laughs> um, and in terms of reading and learning, I have very good intentions. So I don't know if you guys have it on your phone, but I have the Apple, you know, the reading list thing where you can quickly add something to your reading list. I've been doing that since 2009, I think. I've never once opened the reading list, but I still religiously every day add things with good intention. I'm going to come back to it later. So when I retire, I'll read all of it. And then um, what I do read is about 10 to 15 founder decks every day, which I struggle to understand as someone who studied English literature at university, but try to understand the technology and what they're doing. So that keeps me, keeps me honest. As Johnny said, meeting literally thousands of entrepreneurs every year, that's where you really learn. Um, and then recently, Clubhouse has been great. New, new, new trend. Have you, have you tried, have you tried, I've, been, I've tried to go in. I got into a couple of quite ridiculous conversations. I got a bit scared and felt intimidated and left. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting one. There's some really good conversations happening um, on Clubhouse now. And I don't, I don't know why it is, whether it's fresh or whatever, but people seem to speak really freely on it. So that's that's an interesting trend. I think you'll see a lot of good conversations there. I think rather ominously, Mark Zuckerberg joined a conversation on Clubhouse the other day, which I think wow. signals to me that he's going to snap it up before it gets too big. But yeah, Clubhouse is interesting. Um, and then and then listening to my wife who teaches me, teaches me uh, lots as well. Well, just before we end, I'd love to kind of reflect on on your own careers and maybe talk about your your greatest hits in your mind and also your biggest flops. If you'll indulge us with those, you may decide not to. But we'll start with with the best ones. What you know, pound for pound, has been either the best investment or the thing which you saw which no one else did, or perhaps just something you're most proud of personally. I don't know who wants to kick that off. I'll give you my luckiest one because it just happened. Um, we just sold Pro Founders, which I set up with Rogan and Sean and, and Brent. Ended up um, through absolutely no strategic logic by me at all. A We invested in a business called Applify, which we ended up selling to Unity. And I don't think they had any cash. So we decided to take some shares um, with the obviously Unity went public and our lockup ended on Friday, so we just sold the shares today. And on a two hundred fifty thousand pound investment that I actually had forgotten we'd even made, <laughs> we've made uh, just under two hundred times our money. Wow! So that, in just simple multiple terms, is the luckiest investment <laughs> that I've ever been fortunate enough to claim anything to. Uh, I think we did also, though, manage to turn down Supercell, which oh, was well, clearly wow. as 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 much genius. So we uh, we had an opportunity to invest a bit more in that. Uh, somebody, I, I I would love to think it was Brent, but I don't think it was. Didn't like the first game or something, so we turned <laughs> it down. Um, that would have made us. I think we had an opportunity to invest a million dollars. That would have made us 
Yeah, we made 40 million out of the Unity. Uh, I think the Supercell one, we probably would have made 150 or something. Wow. Uh, so that's that's quite sobering, always to remember. <laughs> Just that there is, I think at the venture stage, there is a logic and a talent to spotting the clusters that are emerging. But you, know, you look at YouTube, there were you know, 10 equivalents of YouTube in the same area on the West Coast at the same time. Uh, and the return on investment on those, on that, on that video um, experience was across the valley, probably about a three X, i.e. nine of them went bust and YouTube was a phenomenal success. Um, yeah, I was lucky enough to be a tiny investor in Bebo, uh, which Michael has just relaunched. And obviously mm. we, we, we put a little bit of a co-investment with, with Tommy into, in, into his latest venture. Um, uh, but the, yeah, Michael, Michael is now relaunching Bebo, which was sold for 750, $800 million and is now, then collapsed to a dollar, which shut down and is now being restarted. And we've all seen that a bit. So these big exits and then the business is going down because you've you've gone into an area. You know, we saw Friends Reunited year, years ago as well. So you look at Friends Reunited, Bebo, um, and then you've obviously had Facebook. So I think my worst mistakes is probably... You 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 recognise that something is going to work in terms of a, there's a sector theme, um, and you just investing in just one is probably putting too many bets on one horse, and you've just got to sometimes go okay this this is a trend that's going to happen. How are you going to invest in two or three of these? Yeah, which is difficult. Exit in baskets. Yeah, I know. Look, I, I fundamentally my best ones have been people. Um, there's the ones to watch for me at the moment where I, the traction is really good is something like David Bennickson at Signal. Um, Bertie Hubbard, he's got an online education business and they are just super impressive from the day I first met them. They've got drive and determination and they're doing it because they want to build a business hmm. and they're not the sort of professional entrepreneurs that we were talking about earlier. What about you, Tommy? What have been the good, the bad and the ugly? Um, well, the ugly was not listening to my friend and, and colleague, Cole Rise, who was a, an amazing designer, who was my chief creative officer at Swing, my startup, who told me in 2013 to put everything I have into Bitcoin. And I thought he was, I thought he was mad and said no. And I kept on saying no, and he kept on reminding me every year since, and I still haven't bought any. So I, I, I could have owned half of London, if I think, if I took Cole's advice. So that was a bad <laughs> one. Um, and, you know, you miss ones the whole time, and it's a sickening feeling when you when you miss good ones. Um, so plenty of misses. I think the, you know, some good ones, obviously, Calm was, was a really good investment and a really sort of world-positive one. And I think, you know, sometimes you can be bold. Uh, for example, you know, at the, the height of the pandemic, we decided to really invest in Calm. We thought they would be part of the solution to the problem with a lot of mental health issues going around and more screen time at home. So that went really well. Uh, so boldness can pay off sometimes. Sometimes it can backfire. And I think, you know, if I think you asked about career highlights. For me, the, the thing I've taken the greatest pride from has been when we when we sold our startup swing to Microsoft. Um, one of our iOS developers, our mobile developers, a guy called Dimitri, was able to move from Belarus where he'd been working, where he'd grown up, 
and, and moved to a, a cushy job at Microsoft and now lives in an enormous palace in Seattle. Um, and his kids go to school there and, you know, he's avoided all of the chaos that Belarus has, has undergone. Yeah. That, that was for me the, the coolest thing that's happened to me in my career and just, you know, the impact that you can have of if you build something together, the good things that come to, to not just founders, but team members as well. Incredible. Tommy, Johnny, thank you so much for talking to us. There's so much more I would have liked to touch on, but time is precious and you probably both got about 40 more people to speak to today. So maybe there'll have to be a part two, um, perhaps in the flesh. But it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so, so much for speaking. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.